All right, good morning, and as Jerry said, my name is Dan. I am the groups and outreach pastor here at the Carmel campus, and whether you are in person with us or you are joining us online, we are thrilled that you are here as we continue our year-long study on the Gospel of John. And my family and I, we've only been around here a couple months, but it became apparent pretty quickly that the reason we're spending so much time, an entire year, in one gospel is so that as a church family, we can grow in our knowledge, understanding, and affection for Jesus. And we believe that one of the best ways to do that is to examine the words of one of his closest followers. And I think uh, what we're going to see today, in my opinion, are some of Jesus' most important words. And certainly some of his most practical words as we get into John chapter 15. And what we're going to see Jesus teaching about is the idea of being prepared. Now, the Boy Scout motto, if you don't know it, is be prepared. It's the idea of just being prepared for any situation at all times. And more or less what Jesus is going to say in three words is that same kind of thing. He's going to teach the disciples, hey, this is how you're prepared for what comes next. And what was coming next for the disciples is life without him right by their side. And as I was thinking about that over the last couple of weeks, all of the things that we prepare for, I realized that so much of life we spend preparing for the next season of life, right? Like we prepare for weddings, we prepare for careers, we prepare for midlife career changes, we prepare to have kids, we prepare for retirement, we prepare to care for aging parents, and so much more. And I've got Tons of friends who love, for some reason, to prepare for marathons. Now, I can honestly and proudly tell you, I have never once run a marathon, and so I've got no reason to prepare for it. But they love to tell me about how intentionally they are preparing. They love to tell me about their short run days and their long run days. And while I don't really care, I'm just glad they're preparing so they can actually survive the race. And what that got me thinking about is that a little over 10 years ago, my wife and I, Kristen, uh, we were on the verge of a massive life change because those are the things we prepare for the most, right? We prepare for the things that we see coming. And a little over 10 years ago, we were expecting the arrival of our first child, our daughter, Aiden. And from the minute we found out, we knew that we needed to prepare our home, we needed to prepare ourselves, and we even needed to prepare the dog that we had at the time. And so we immediately start talking about colors for the nursery and what color crib and dresser go with the color for the walls and where we want the crib, where we want the dresser, where we want pictures on the wall and which ones can hang above the crib and which ones can't because they might fall off. And because, you know, we have so many earthquakes in central Indiana, we were really concerned about that, right? Like we thought we can't have a picture hanging over there. It might fall on her in the middle of the night and just crush her. Um, That didn't happen, by the way. But even down to which stuffed animals were in the crib and which ones were in baskets that we had hung on the wall, we intentionally prepared. And Kristen even took the time to completely refinish a kid-sized rocking chair that once sat in her grandparents' farmhouse decades before. And so as we intentionally prepared our home, we also knew we need to prepare ourselves. And so along with 10 to 12 other couples, we went through two to three months worth of parenting classes. 
And for those of you in the room or online who have kids and you've been through these classes, you know that realistically they're just teaching you how to keep an infant alive. And a little more than that, like they're trying to teach you how to help it thrive as well. And I remember one of the most important things that our instructor said is, hey, if you want your kid, if you want your child to to survive and thrive, then you need to have a healthy, loving marriage, which I thought was great. But at the end of our time in this class, um, after 10, 12 weeks with all of the wives getting more and more uncomfortable as the classes went on, our instructor stood up and said, congratulations, you are prepared to be parents. Apparently, she thought we were, uh, because I will never forget the day that we finally got to bring Aiden home from the hospital. I helped Kristen into the house while I was carrying the car seat in the other hand, and as we walked through the kitchen, I was struck with this epiphany, and because I like to verbally process things, I turned to Kristen and I said, oh my gosh, they actually let us leave the hospital. Like, we have this little baby, and like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't remember how to change diapers or when she needs to eat or how much sleep she needs to get or how to get her to sleep or all these different things. Like, what are are we going to do? And in that moment, despite our months and months of preparation, I felt totally overwhelmed and utterly underprepared for the season of life that we had just stepped into. And I think a lot of us often find ourselves feeling that way, overwhelmed and underprepared. And it's one thing to feel that way when you see the change coming. And that feeling is magnified, though, when it's something you didn't see coming. PJ earlier talked about 9-11. I was a freshman in high school 21 years ago when that happened. And uh, thinking back, I realized I wasn't prepared for what that meant. And I wasn't in you know, realistically, a lot of us were unprepared for the emotions that come along with that. And so even just taking this outside of large national or global events, things like an unexpected cancer diagnosis or job loss or loss of a loved one, or even figuring out how to navigate the constantly changing waters of our culture today in a way that honors God, like we can often feel overwhelmed and underprepared. And what we're going to see today in John chapter 15 is that Jesus tells us how to be prepared. And so as we ask ourselves the question, what's the best way to be prepared for a life of faithfulness? We're going to look to Jesus for the answer. And so if you'll pray with me, we'll continue. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word and the power that it carries. I pray that your spirit will move in this room and that, and that we will hear your voice in the midst of these words and that you will speak to us and that you will prepare us for what you have in store. God, we love you and we trust you. Amen. Now, uh, before we jump into reading, I want to kind of set the scene a little bit and kind of look at where we are in the book of John with kind of a wide angle lens. Because at this point, John has spent two whole chapters leading up to chapter 15. So we had chapter 13 and 14 and 15. And because my mom's a math teacher, I understand that's how numbers work. They always go in order. The other service thought that was a lot funnier, but okay, (laughs) that's fine. Um, But what we're going to see is that Jesus is extremely intentional and he's been spending the night, because this is the night before he's crucified. He's been spending his final hours 
preparing his disciples for life without him right by their side. And so in chapter 13, we see him say, hey guys, this is how I expect you to love, care, and serve for other people as he washed their feet. And in chapter 14, we, we see him teaching about, hey, um, I'm going to leave and that's okay because I'm going to get somewhere ready for you. And actually it's better that I go because I'm going to send you a helper in the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot going on in that upper room that night during and after that meal. And then chapter 14, verse 31, I think Jesus kind of looks around and realizes that his disciples could use some fresh air, but he has a specific place in mind that he wants to take them. So he looks around the room and he says, okay, guys, get up. Let's go out from here is how one translation put it. And that's where we pick up our story in John chapter 15, starting at verse one. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, most scholars believe, and I, I tend to agree, that at this point, Jesus and the disciples, they leave that upper room and they walk out into the night to go to the temple. And most likely, this is what the temple looked like um, on that night. And Jesus brings them here for a number of reasons, and we'll get into those in a minute. But if you look right here along the top, above this uh, entrance, you see a massive massive golden grapevine. And this wasn't just some like first, bold first century church decor decision. Like everything about the temple was meant for a specific reason. Every tool had a specific use and every symbol and every image had a, was meant to represent something specific. And this vine was meant to represent the nation of Israel and not just the nation of Israel as a whole, but it was meant to represent the nation of Israel as God's chosen people. And if you remember back to the book of Genesis, God shows up and he calls this guy named Abram and he says, hey, Abram, I'm going to bless you so you can bless other people. And through you, every single nation on earth is going to be blessed. And the whole nation of Israel were the descendants of Abraham. And so it was their responsibility. It was they also were called to live out this, this blessing. And God had chosen Israel to partner with him to restore the world. And he had specifically placed them in what they called the promised land to accomplish that. But a quick survey of the Old Testament makes it pretty clear that Israel wasn't quite up to the task. And rather than blessing all nations, they chose to just act like all the other nations around them. And so God sent a number of prophets to his people to attempt to course correct, 
so to speak, to, to speak truth to them, to say, hey, guys, we're missing the mark. We need to make some adjustments here and, and come back to God. And, I, and in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, we read, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in, which so far so good, right? But then it goes on and he says, and he looked for justice, he being God, looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of mercy. And God had called his people to live in this specific place to point other nations back to him. And he specifically placed them there so that they could have the influence in the ancient world, because one thing we often overlook about that is that that area of the world where Israel was located was the crossroads of the ancient world. As civilizations from the east moved west, they came straight through Israel, and as civilizations from the west came through the, the going east, they came through Israel too, and so it's almost like God had a, like, like he had a plan. He had a plan to engage every nation by where he placed his people and asked them to reflect his love and his character. And they exchanged that plan. They exchanged the plan that he had for them for, uh, to, to bless others, to, to just seek their own blessings. And instead of caring for the alien and the orphan and the widow, as God had commanded, they were concerned with no one other than themselves. And as Jesus is standing outside the temple... He makes this bold statement and says, guys, look, I'm here to do the thing that Israel never could. I'm here to be the true vine that brings the life that God will use to redeem and restore his world. And it's a bold statement, like I said, especially because they're standing just outside the temple when the city of Jerusalem is packed for Passover. But Jesus pushes this even farther and uses the idea of, gar- of God as the gardener to reinforce this metaphor that he's building and that God wants to see fruit. And so going on to verses two and three, Jesus says, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And so Jesus, as he's pushing this metaphor of the picture of a a vine and a gardener and trimming and fruit and all the different things that go along with that. He knows that the the disciples would have understood this because grapevines were extremely prevalent in the first century. And also in conjunction with that vine above the door, I think Jesus wanted them to remember this conversation, to remember this important lesson that he's teaching them every time they entered the temple, every time they saw the vine above the sanctuary door, every time they saw a gardener working on the grapevines at their house. I think he wanted them to return to this conversation where he talks about remaining, cutting, and fruit. And one of the things we often miss in our English translations is that the words cut prune and clean in the Greek are all related to each other. And Bible teacher Brad Gray teaches that the word cut, which is the Greek word is iro, and you don't need to remember that for any reason. There's no test later. Um, but the Greek word for cut um, is most likely translated that way because it fits the metaphor that Jesus was building. But a more accurate representation of what that word means is to lift up. And the word prune, which is related to the word for cut, means to cleanse from impurity. 
And the word clean, well, that means to be free from guilt, free from sin. It means blameless. And this matters because in, the ancient, in ancient Israel, vineyards didn't look like what we expect now. They didn't look like this. When we think of vineyards, we think of acres and acres of well-manicured grapevines growing on these wires that are attached to posts. And we, we think of things like this from Tuscany or Bordeaux or Napa, or as somebody said to me between services, a Hallmark movie. Yes, thank you. Um, but that's not what a grapevine in the first century looked like. A grapevine in the first century, because they didn't have this system, would actually grow across the ground. And so a gardener would have to intentionally and painstakingly work through evaluating every part of the plants. He would have to look at every leaf and look at every branch. And when he or she would find a section that had developed a mold or a mildew or even grapes that were just growing up against a rock or growing on the ground, they would not just immediately cut it off. They would pick it up. They would clean it off. And then they would prop it up. And the reason they would prop it up is because grapes that grow on the ground never really get bigger than a raisin. They don't taste good and they're not good enough to make wine, so they're completely useless. And so what Jesus is saying to the disciples is he's saying, guys, look, this is what I've done for you. This is what God has done for you. He picked you up. He attached you to me. He's cleaned you off and he's propped you up. So now you are ready to go and bear fruit. But maybe that's... Maybe that's what some of us need reminded of today, is that if we look at God as the gardener, he's, he's patient, he's good. He's not going to just immediately cut off a branch at the first sign of fruitlessness or the first sign of a mold or a mildew. He's going he's gonna to show up and pick it up and clean it off and prop it up so that it can be ready to bear fruit. Or maybe, maybe we need to be reminded that as followers of Jesus who are attached to the vine, that there's more to being attached to Jesus than just being attached. Like the goal is not that you just be a branch. The goal is that you bear fruit. The goal of a branch is to bear fruit and a fruit and um, a branch that doesn't bear fruit. Well, there's no point. And as followers of Jesus, this should be our goal to bear fruit, not to worry about the amount of fruit, but to let God take care of that. Our responsibility is to remain. And so in verse five, Jesus goes on and says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And what I love about this verse is that Jesus makes it incredibly clear. If you stay connected to me, you will bear much fruit. It's that simple. If we remain in Jesus, he'll take care of the fruit. And according to him, it won't just be a little fruit. It will be much fruit. But again, our responsibility is not to be worried about the fruit. We have to trust and we have to be patient and let God do his work of preparing us for fruit. And one of the things I think is fast, that I think is fascinating is that a grapevine takes three years to get to the point of producing fruit. And the disciples spent three to three and a half years with Jesus. And so it's a little unrealistic for us to expect to produce fruit 
overnight. We need to be patient. We need to engage. And we need to let the Spirit lead us to the point of being ready to bear fruit. But this promise is also paired with a stark reality that a branch that's not connected to a vine is totally incapable of bearing any fruit. And so we have to ask ourselves, if I'm going to remain attached, what kind of fruit am I going to bear? Well, the fruit that we bear as we remain connected to Jesus is that we grow in our Christ-likeness. As we grow connected to the vine and our connection grows even stronger and we continue to remain, we start to care more about the things that matter to Jesus and we start to see other people with the same way that he sees them. One of my favorite authors, this guy named N.T. Wright, um, who's extremely intelligent. I've heard him make this argument a number of times, and I love how he says that our job as followers of Jesus is to serve as an angled mirror. It's our job to reflect God's love and character into his creation while simultaneously reflecting the praise of creation back to God. And the more we are able to remain, the stronger our connection is, the clearer that reflection becomes. And that's what Jesus is getting at in verse 8 when he says, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Because as we show ourselves to be disciples of Jesus and we stay connected, the fruit will eventually come. And that's the goal is that we produce fruit. But this doesn't happen naturally, though. It requires immense dependency. And our natural tendency and the influence of our culture is to be as independent as possible. Like, for goodness sake, like we have a declaration of independence. We have our, in our history, we fought a war of independence and those are great things and great things have come about because of those. But when it comes to our faith, independence is not what we need to seek. We need to seek complete dependence upon Jesus, complete dependence upon the spirit. Because Jesus stresses the fact that branches separated from the vine, produce absolutely zero fruit because branches are dependent upon the vine for nutrients to live and nutrients to bear fruit. And so maybe we just need to remember that our job is to be a branch, not to, to be an independent vine. And as we look at this whole passage, this whole passage, Jesus is painting a picture of two types of branches. And it's pretty obvious. There's fruitful branches and there's fruitless branches. And you would think that the difference between the two as you would look at them would be pretty obvious. You would think a fruitless branch is going to be dried and withered and, and lifeless. And a fruitful branch is going to be vibrant. But that's not always the case. That's why it matters that God is a good gardener is because he takes the time to assess every branch individually. He takes the time to look over a branch that looks like it's bearing fruit or ready to bear fruit. And when he sees that it's not, he treats it accordingly. He, he picks it up. He gets it ready. He does what he needs to so that it can bear fruit. While a fruitful branch, he evaluates and he sees fruit starting to grow. And so he starts to cut away things that draw nutrients away from the fruit and see, what we have to remember is that it's God's job 
to be the gardener. It's his job to evaluate fruitfulness. It's not ours. It's our job to, to remain. And the more we're connected to the vine, the more we're prepared to produce fruit in adverse conditions. And how do we, and so how do we produce fruit in adverse conditions? Staying connected to the vine requires intentionally choosing to remain. And when it feels like life can't get any worse or that culture is trying its hardest to strangle out any budding fruit that may be coming about, we have to choose to stay connected to our source of life. And I think it's important to look at this passage and realize that Jesus doesn't look at the disciples and say, hey, guys, go bear fruit. He looks at the disciples and says, remain in me. And as you remain in me, I'll take care of the fruit. And you see, our response, while the goal is fruit, our responsibility is to remain attached to the vine. If we can remain, Jesus will bring about the fruit in its time. And I think that's really important for us to remember. It's going to take time. And over that time, there are, there are things we can do to strengthen our connection. And so I want to give you three key elements for remaining in Christ. And I'm sure all of these will be a shock to you because the first one is reading your scripture and praying daily. No, no, audible, ga- no audible gasps. I'm not surprised at all because like you all saw this coming, right? Like you, we hear this all the time, but it's so true. And that's why we hear it is because the more time we spend in God's word, the more God's word gets into us and has the ability to change us. That's why in Hebrews chapter four, it says, the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. And what the author of Hebrews is getting at here is that God's word has an immense power to it, that as you read it, as you engage in it, as you talk to others about it, it's going to bring about change in your life. It's going, to, it's going to bring to your attention the areas of your life that are actually taking nutrients away from fruit. It's going to show you areas where, that, it, that are pulling you away from the vine. But because of God's grace, it also shows you how to deal with those and how to give those over to the gardener to let him do with them what, they will, what he will. Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor in the 1800s in London, said... A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And while he's not saying that if you just read your Bible, everything will be okay, he is saying that the more you read your Bible and the more you engage with this, the stronger your connection to the vine will become. And the stronger your connection to the vine becomes, the the easier it is to withstand the onslaught of a storm of whatever it is that life throws at you, whether it's a changing culture or an unexpected diagnosis or an unexpected loss of a job. And so I understand that it can be hard to start reading your Bible and to build that habit because let's be honest, like there are things in here that are really confusing and the language doesn't always help. And so if you are struggling to get into a habit, build a habit of engaging with the Bible daily, like we have resources for you. At the Blue Tent out in the lobby, we have a reading plan that goes right along with our study of the Gospel of John, with the Gospel of John. You can grab one of those and, and just join right along with us. 
And if you want, you can go back to the beginning of it, or you can just jump right in to where we are to start building that habit. Or you can download the YouVersion Bible app, which from what I understand has recently surpassed almost everybody on the planet. I don't know, like every, I see numbers that they, everybody has it, but maybe not. But the point of it is that the YouVersion Bible app, thank you for laughing at that. I thought it was kind of funny, but the point of the app is to help you build a habit and you can even set reminders and you can find reading plans that give you everything you need. It'll give you the scripture. It'll give you an explanation of it. And it's designed to help you grow in your reading. But paired with reading our Bible is also spending daily time in prayer. Because if we understand God's word, if we understand scripture as God's word to us, prayer is our communication back to God. And because a relationship can't be one-sided, God desires for us to communicate with him. And as we pray, it can be intimidating to think, wow, I'm, I can really just talk to the guy who made everything. And we can feel this weight or this pressure of wanting to perform, but we don't need to find the right combinations of words or have an elegant, long speech prepared to, to get God's attention or to get him to intervene in our lives. In fact, Jesus has some really strong words to say about that because what God is looking for is he's looking for authenticity and dependency. And so maybe the best place to start is just simply acknowledging before God, hey, I don't know what I'm doing here but I trust that you want to talk with me, so I'm going to lean on that. The Apostle Paul even says in the book of Romans that when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit prays for us. And that's why it's important that this teaching came after Jesus talked to the disciples about the Holy Spirit is because the Holy Spirit is there to help us connect with God. And so the second key element I want to give you is community. And I know, surprise, surprise, the groups guy is up here banging on about getting into a group. Well, yes, I am. Because if you're not in a group, you're really missing out. Like, we were designed to live in community with others. And that doesn't just mean our local community. It means a faith community. And even more so than just gathering here, or viewing a service online, it means getting into a group where we can walk our faith out on a regular basis with people who are going to push us to be closer to Jesus, to live like Jesus does. And so if you're here and you're not in a group, we, you heard Jerry talk about, we have a group connect event in our community room, straight out these doors, past the coffee into the community room where we're going to have some new group leaders and people who can just help you get connected to a group. Because we believe that this is vitally important to your walk with Jesus. And these groups ultimately end up, the goal is to serve as smaller churches within our larger church body. They're places where you can find support, where you can support others, but ultimately where you can all move closer to Jesus and encourage one another to follow Jesus closer every single day. And if you're, if you're watching this online, you can simply go to genesischurch.me slash groups and you can find group info there and you can fill out a form or even in the app and will help you get connected to a group because that's how much we believe in this. And just to give you an idea of how important community is and how important it is to remain connected to Jesus with others, when Jesus ascended back to heaven, the disciples didn't go out on their own. 
They went out in pairs and they went out in groups because they knew they would need somebody who could remind them of this moment where Jesus said, hey, remain in me because it's going to be really hard for you out there. And guys, that is why we believe in this so much is because what we do here on a Sunday is great. I love gathering as a church family, but the reason I'm starting a men's group this coming Thursday is because I know I need to be in a smaller circle of people who push me to follow Jesus better every single day. And the third key element is where things get a little uncomfortable, and it's obedience. And the reason things get uncomfortable when it comes to obedience is because this is where a lot of the pruning starts to happen. The stronger we grow in our connection to Jesus, the more time we spend reading, the more time we spend praying. And these, these are not things that we, we just do to gain favor with God, but to connect with God and to remain in God. But the more time we spend growing in our connection with God, he's going to bring to us areas of our life that don't quite align with what he asks of his followers. And so he's going to ask us to leave some of those things behind. And that sometimes that might be really hard. And ultimately it will be really good for us. But the truth of the matter is that that can be really painful. And some of the times in your life when you will grow the absolute most in your walk with Christ, in your relationship with him, are going to be some of the most painful. I know that's true in my own life. There have been times that have been extremely painful where my family and I have walked through something that we didn't want to go through. But at the end of it, we were a lot more connected to Jesus. But because we can trust that God is a good gardener, we can know that that pain, as hard as it may be, will be temporary. And not only that it will be temporary, but that there will also be a purpose to that pain. And the purpose that comes along with that pain is a stronger connection to the vine and the ability for God to bear greater fruit in your life. Now, the flip side of that coin is that as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, he's going to start asking us to do things that maybe we don't want to do, things that are good, but things that are uncomfortable, like maybe giving up a weekend to serve others in our community or serving at church, or it could be a number of different things. And honestly, he's going to start asking you to, to step a little further and further out of your comfort zone. And this is a story for another time, but me even standing here and talking to you this way is, is an example of that. We, like I said, we can get into that story a whole another time. But the key thing to remember is that as we practice obedience, our connection to the vine grows, which gives us a greater desire to be more obedient and so you see, it's just this cycle of Jesus asks and we obey and our connection grows and we want to be more obedient. And it just begins to repeat. And so I want to ask you the question, what would your life look like if you could remain daily? What would your life look like? What would your family life look like? What would 
your work life look like? What would your relationships look like if in six months from now or 12 months from now, you're just a little bit more connected to Jesus? If in that time, you're just a little bit stronger in your faith. Because remaining in Jesus is how we are prepared to live a life of faithfulness despite anything that gets thrown at us. And here's the thing. Jesus intentionally taught this lesson outside the temple. And he intentionally taught this after he told the disciples, I'm getting ready to go, but I'm giving you a helper. I think he did that because he knew we can't do it on our own. We have a tendency towards independence and we want to show Jesus, hey, I can do this for you, but that's not what he wants. He wants us to remain and let the Holy Spirit do the work of preparing us and bringing about the fruit. He's given us the Holy Spirit so we can walk this out. And so the band is going to come and they're going to lead a song called Spirit Lead Me. And I had never heard this song before about Wednesday of this week. And I, I see why it was picked. Um, and honestly, I, I rearranged my message a little bit just because of the words of it, because the words are all about giving things over to the spirit, to letting the spirit do the work. So my prayer for you as the band plays and as they lead us in this song is whether you sit and just let the words wash over or you stand and you sing is that these words will become your own prayer. And that these are the words that the Holy Spirit will use to bring something about in your heart to strengthen your connection to Jesus, to draw you in to a deeper relationship with Jesus. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the word. Thank you for metaphors that you used so we could understand. God, thank you most of all for the promise of your Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to, to bring about the fruit. And that all we need to do is just continue to remain in you. We just need to continue to submit ourselves to your Lordship. So God, as, as the band sings and as they lead us, I pray that your spirit will just move in this place. Remind us that we're attached to you to bear fruit and that you long to see us grow even more connected. God, we love you. Amen.